Welcome, everybody. It's Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show, and your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And today we are going to take a bit overdue look at what happened with uh, Donald Trump when he took the United States out of the Climate Accord. What does that mean uh, in terms of the Paris Climate Accord? But what more, more importantly and as importantly, what does that mean for the United States what is happening in this country is this becoming now one of the most important issues in politics because of his withdrawal, because some of the people on this program, um, including myself, uh, in years past, criticized the Paris Climate Agreement uh, as too weak. And now people are very upset because he's pulled out of a two-week agreement. So what does all that mean? And then we'll talk about where the movement is right now in America. We are joined once again by Mustafa Ali, who is Senior Vice President for Climate and Environmental Justice and Community Revitalization at the Hip Hop Caucus, uh, and Mitch Jones, Senior Policy Advocate for Food and Water Watch. And gentlemen, good to have you both with us. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. So, so, let me start with you. So, what is what what what? Uh, I mean, people expected him to withdraw from the United States from the Paris Climate Accord. So, a what's your first reaction to that? Your and your analysis of what it really means. Yeah, well, I think it's par for the course uh, for this administration to actually go against the will of the people, if you will. Um, and, and it's a shame um, because the actions that this administration, uh, the actions that this president is taking, is actually going to have you know some serious impacts on communities, especially the most vulnerable communities, um, in the public health sort of aspect of it, the choices that have been made. Um, will cause there to be, you know, additional uh, air pollution um, challenges uh, for communities across the country, and meaning that there will be, you know, higher incidence of asthma, and unfortunately there will also be um, additional deaths that will happen uh, in that space. Uh, there will be additional challenges also to our public health system and to, you know, those who are, uninsured and underinsured um, because of the choices that are being made. More folks will be going to the emergency room uh, to deal with some of these impacts that are happening, especially in communities that already were fighting to get traction, that were already facing, you know, disproportionate effects from pollution. Um, he's also going to create additional pollution uh, in our most vulnerable communities that have, you know, coal-fired power plants and, and other types of greenhouse gas emitting facilities inside of those communities. And he has definitely missed an opportunity with the new climate economy uh, to help those, all communities, but especially our most vulnerable communities who unfortunately have higher rates of, of uh, unemployment, um, who could be benefiting uh, from these new clean jobs uh, and the opportunities that exist in that space, both in solar and wind and a number of other areas as well. Uh, so for an administration and in a president that says that they care about what's happening inside of our country who says that he wants to create uh, economic opportunities inside of our country, these actions uh, run contrary uh, to the words that, that come out of his mouth and from the tweets that he sends across the country. Um, and and it's, it's, it's definitely, you know, it's a shame um, that we don't have real leadership happening at the federal level, but thank goodness that we do at the state and local level. Mitch, pick up. Yeah, you know, I think... Mark, you, you alluded when you started that many of us, Food and Water Watch included, me personally included, didn't believe that Paris was the, the bold, decisive leadership that we needed on climate to begin with. I mean, if you actually look at, at the accord, there's no enforcement mechanism. 
even if every country met its obligations, which again, there's no way of enforcing, under the accord, that would only get us to roughly three and a half degrees Celsius temperature rise from pre-industrial periods. That is um, much higher than what scientists are telling us we need to, to try to cap temperature rise at. So even if the accord were successful in terms of, on its, on its own merits, it would be a failure in terms of trying to prevent climate change. Having said that, pulling out of a weak accord because you think it's too strong sends exactly the wrong message. What the United States should be doing is exhibiting uh, leadership on a global scale, pushing to strengthen these accords. And in, uh, if that were to fail, taking it upon ourselves to actually push for 100% renewable energy uh, as a key component to getting us uh, away from, from drastic, dramatic climate change. Um, so this sends, you know, it's, it's a problem not because the Paris Accord itself was great, but because we've abdicated any sense of American leadership on the issue of climate change, not that we had much to begin with, but the possibility of the United States really taking a lead and driving global policy on this has just now been handed over. It's been handed to the Europeans, it's been handed to the Chinese, and you know that from that perspective, I think that this is, is a real problem. We ought not to have pulled out thinking it was too strong, we ought to have worked to strengthen it or failing that emboldened our own policies to to lead on a global scale. I do think that, you know, everything that Mustafa just said is right in terms of failure to act on this is going to uh, most adversely affect uh, the most vulnerable communities uh, in our country. There was an article I saw today, there's already a town in Louisiana that because of increased flooding is having to be relocated. Uh, we've seen articles in recent weeks about um, a, a scramble for uh, property at higher uh, elevations in Miami because of concerns of uh, increased flooding there. Um, and you could just imagine the displacement that's going to happen as uh, folks who um, are having their homes uh, flooded and coastal areas are moving into other areas and displacing the residents are, that are there. I mean, consider Baltimore. If we have enough temp, uh, enough uh, ocean rise, sea level rise, uh, areas in downtown Baltimore like Fells Point are going to be flooded. Well, you know, the people in Fells Point tend to be better off than those of us who live further north in the city. But where are those folks going to move? They're going to move further north. They're going to displace communities that are already facing uh, challenges that that are overwhelming. So it's it's a problem that we have seated leadership. It's going to affect uh, exactly the folks and exactly the ways that Mustafa laid out. And I think that, you know, it's a it's a a real failure for somebody who keeps claiming, uh, as the president does, that they want to, you know, exhibit make America great again and exhibit leadership. That's we've done the exact opposite. Here we've We've really yielded leadership on what is, in many ways, the uh, prime uh, global issue of this century. So, when you look at the polls, let's just talk about this for a minute. And they show that sixty percent of Americans almost um, disagree with what he did. A majority of Republicans agree with what he did. Sixty-seven percent of Republicans, but fifty-nine percent of Americans in total disagree with what he did. 
and I think that you you talked about we talked about being a weaker chord, but Mustafa, I think most Americans don't think of it in terms of weaker, stronger chord. They just think of it as something that was going to do something about climate change and we pulled out because people don't get into the weeds on these things unless you're in, in the middle of it for whatever reason you're in the middle of it. So I mean, so what what does that take it politically? You know, I mean, what we can talk about Europe in a moment, but I'm just wondering where you think it takes it, us politically here in America. What what what's the, what's the equation being set up here? Well, I actually see, uh, you know, Mark, I'm all over the country. Yeah, you are. All over the place. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Literally talking to thousands of people sometimes every week. And I actually see a shift that is happening. So I I think it is an unintended impact that the president has caused. But I actually see silos being sort of broken down. And uh, organizations and, and individuals who in the past uh, maybe didn't see uh, sort of common goals um, who are now coming together. So I think that's a real positive uh, in that space and sort of a dark cloud, if you will, that folks are actually starting to come together. I also see um, folks um, in sort of business and industry situations who are now also starting to, to step up. Um, one, probably because, one, they want consistency. Two, in those larger sort of sort of um, you know, businesses and industries that actually have shareholders, they also want that consistency and, and sort of, you know, the investments uh, that need to be made. Um, and, um, and a number of other areas also where folks are starting to find common ground. It's almost like what Dr. King said that we came to these shores on different ships, but we're now all in the same boat now. I think people are starting to actually get that, that if we don't address these issues, uh, that, you know, the, the impacts that are coming will be devastating, uh, you know, to, to all kinds of communities um, and that they need to get together. The other thing that I think is missing um, is, is stronger education in this space. I, I truly believe that there are a lot of folks who are kind of, you know, they're on the fence and not really having a real good understanding of, you know, what's coming, but also what are the opportunities um, and how do we make real change? Um, and, uh, you know, I, you know, as you know, I come from Appalachia, um, and having conversations with folks who are there, in many instances, this is tied to an economic decision for some of those folks, placing, mm-hmm. you know, uh, having a job over their health and over the health of their children, uh, you know, trying to deal with the immediate needs um, in this moment. And that's why, you know, a stronger, more uh, a climate economy that is more equitable um, would be so important in helping folks to maybe they're in the Rust Belt or they're in Appalachia uh, or on the Gulf Coast, having more choices uh, in this space, being able to create those types of jobs that could help them uh, to be able to move forward if they move out of you know the fossil fuel industry um, is also very, very important. So I think one is education, two, understanding the culture that exists around our country and helping uh, and creating language that helps people to better be able to bridge some of these issues and have a better understanding of how, you know, a new future could look um, if we just make the right choices. Yeah, so, again, uh, you know, just building, I I think, a bit on what Mustafa said, I do think, you know, your question was about the politics of it. And, you know, the numbers are there, 59%, 60%. Think this was a bad idea, um, you know. Americans, by and large, uh, accept climate change. Um, I think that the 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 bit about jobs that Mustafa focused on is actually very important for the political question that we're facing here, because 
There is, I think, opposition to acting on climate change based on a desire to preserve uh, the ability to to make a living, and and that's perfectly understandable. You know, um, I come from a union household. My dad worked in the building trades. I get that, and I think that it's important that for those of us who are uh, advocates on this issue, trying to fight climate change, that we're also advocates for making sure that the that the green economy, if you will, the the, cl the clean energy economy, is built here in the U.S. That we actually have factories in the U.S. building. Um, solar panels, that we have factories like we're being promised now with offshore wind coming to Maryland, that we're going to get a factory here in Baltimore that's going to create, I believe it was 6,900 6, jobs or something like that, building turbines, that instead of abdicating global leadership on this role, we actually double down and make it so that not only are we having the policies that we need to fight climate change, but we are investing in the clean energy economy here so that folks have good paying, preferably union, jobs, building the products here in the U.S. as well as installing the products because the installation jobs are great, but it's those factory jobs that are going to be the higher paying with better uh, benefits and that you're going to be able to uh, afford to have a family if you have those jobs. And I think we need to, to have some focus on that. And that also includes then a focus on energy efficiency, which is, I think, often uh, the redheaded stepchild of this debate. But energy efficiency is hugely important. It's the real bridge fuel, unlike natural gas. And it creates jobs. It reduces <laughs> demand for, for electricity and energy. You know, people often say that the cheapest kilowatt uh, generated is the one that you don't have to generate. It costs less to do investments in energy efficiency than it does to create new generation. And those jobs can't be outsourced because you're retrofitting homes, you're putting people to work in their community, making their community better. And I do think that a just transition to a clean energy has to focus on these sorts of policies as well. It has to be, in a sense, almost an industrial policy as well as a climate policy so that we are cutting emissions quickly, which we have to do, the science is clear. We have to cut emissions quickly. But at the same time, we're making sure that people have jobs, good paying jobs that they can raise family on. So let me stay with this for a moment before we kind of sh shift gears a little bit here, Mustafa, and pick up on a little bit of what Mitch is saying here. I mean, I think that, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people on this program um, from unions and in unions. And especially, I was thinking about this particular conversation people who are, are local leaders and national leaders of the Steelworkers Union, for one. Um, who have real issues with clean energy because of jobs? Mm -hmm. So, and you talked about jobs, and you and you, you know, and we talked this. I think together about this before Mustafa. I mean, you know, where you grew up, you both come from working class families. Mm -hmm. uh, yours is more urban, and 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 Mustafa, you grew up in Appalachia in, in, a, in a working class. I actually family. grew up in a small town in Illinois, Mark. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> okay, okay, fine. Yeah. All right, so, yeah. so the fine. So so, and and that's a real fear for people. I mean, you know, when you make. Serious money, if you're working in a coal mine or working in an oil field or working uh, in, in, in certain plants and, and making enough to take care of your family and live a really decent life, and then you come along for these green jobs and they're paying half the wage. You're not paying the money that, 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 you, that you need to lead a middle-class life in the United States. Um, I mean, the steel mills built the middle class. The steel mills built the black middle class in Baltimore and many other cities. So, so how... How did, and I'm just picking up from what, from what Mitch was saying, Mustafa. How do we begin that both conversation and and understanding of how we build something different? Because that's a real issue, I think. Yeah. Well, no, no, and I and I definitely agree with that. I mean, I I've lived it, and, and it's a part of the cultural conversation that I'm a part of. 
Uh, I mean, I think Pittsburgh is a great example. I mean, you know, recently the president misquoted <laughs> Pittsburgh, but Pittsburgh was a steel town, uh, and now it's become a tech hub. And, you know, folks who worked, some of the folks who worked in the, in the steel industry actually eventually through worker training programs and other things were able to transition, um, you know, into, uh, you know, a newer economy uh, for the Pittsburgh area. And I think that if, as Mitch said, we began to double down and began to be very, very serious about a climate economy, there would be a number of different types of jobs that would exist in that space. Uh, that would present an opportunity for folks to be able to continue uh, with the lifestyle that they're accustomed to and maybe even move beyond that. Um, because, you know, the folks that I grew up with who are union members and others, very talented, very intelligent, um, and given the opportunity, could do a number of different types of things. So I think it's really about if we're going to be serious uh, about a new economy and creating a multitude of different types of opportunities from advanced manufacturing to app design um, to, you know, computer applications to, you know, to installation and to creating, um, you know, opportunities for entrepreneurs to move into this space and to create uh, some other new opportunities as well. So I think that we could have a very diverse uh, set of opportunities um, that would exist for folks in this new economy. So, and I really do think that's something that the people in the environmental movement have to kind of, and the climate justice movement have to kind of really wrestle with. I mean, I think that's, if there's a weak, if there's a weak link in the movement, that's it, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, and there are a couple other weak links we can talk about in a moment, but I mean, that, that to me is one of the weak links. I mean, I think that um, we haven't, to, to build these things on, in the United States, I mean, we have a difficult time kind of figuring out how to bring manufacturing back to the U.S., right. back. Uh, since it was the kind of the large world capital who took it away and decided they wanted to make stuff cheaper elsewhere, that's a, that's a huge battle to fight. Yes, right. I mean, yeah. so that 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 to me is is kind of key. I can see that being one of the battles coming up in the battle over where the accord's going to go and 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 where the next elections yeah. could go. Well, that's a reason why a lot of us. I mean, we at Food and Water Watch, you know, fought very hard against fast track for the Trans Pacific Partnership, and despite the fact that some folks in the media give Trump credit for that. Uh, for the Trans-Pacific Partnership um, failing, that was actually driven by unions, environmental groups, uh, faith groups, uh, environmental justice groups working on the ground, working in communities to make sure that uh, Paul Ryan was never able to call it for a vote in uh, Congress after Fast Track passed, barely. They had to take two votes in the Senate. Um, you know, that was a lot of organizing, and and that's part of that. I mean, it's a very broad conversation, as you know, Mark, because it's not just about the climate, then it's about trade policy. It's about the political economy writ large. And and you're right, and Mustafa is right. That's the, the broader conversation that we have to be having, but we always have to have, I think, in front of us the recognition that what's driving this isn't only a question of jobs. It's not only a question of, of being able to put food on the table, although obviously that's the prime concern for millions of people, it's knowing, as we know, because we know the climate science, that if we don't act now, and if we don't act dramatically, there's not going to be much of a world left, habitable world left, in which people are going to be able to, to have any sort of job or put any sort of food on their table. We're going to have massive disruption of the sort that Mustafa was describing earlier. And so I think, you know, you have to have that out there as kind of the, the overarching target as we're talking about this transformation 
uh, of of our economy so that we can preserve a way of life that you know generations of Americans including our families have used to you know raise families send kids to school uh, and you know actually you know live out a, a good fulfilling life Mustafa, are you about to say something no, okay. no, no, no. I thought, no, I, thought I heard you saying something. Sorry. So, so you, I, one thing about the Paris Climate Accord, I want to be clear about because I've read this in the paper. Maybe either one of you could kind of explain this in greater detail. So, so he pulls out this climate accord. He being Trump, yeah. um, and uh, but I've also read that there's not much he can do. That we're stuck. If you want to use the word stuck, that we're in this climate accord until 2020. Yeah. I mean, you just can't walk away from it. Right. It's not a, so 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 what is this, what has he really done here? Well, I think yeah, I mean, he's begun the process of pulling out of the accord. It's kind of like when uh, voters voted for Brexit in in the UK, and then the Prime Minister came had to eventually come along, and Parliament had a vote for it. They've begun the process. It's going to take several years because of the way the agreements are structured. But I think what it means in in real terms, despite the fact that you know it's going to be November fourth, twenty twenty, before we're out is that the U.S. is no longer going to be taking, at a federal level, any action to try to meet our commitments under, you know, we'll just stop. Sure, we're in it, but given that there's no enforcement mechanisms anyway, we can just stop trying to meet those goals, and there's nothing really anybody can do about it. Um, except for the states and, and localities that have stepped up uh, since <clears throat> excuse me, since Trump um, announced he was going to pull us out and have said, well, you know what, despite what the president sa has said, despite what Trump has said, we're going to move forward. And I think that that is uh, really, you know, at least until January 20th, 2021, that's where the climate debate and movement is going to have to take place. It's going to have to take place in localities and it's going to have to take place in states. And those states and localities aren't only going to have to say, well, we'll meet the, the Paris Accord. They're going to have to take much more bold and decisive action to make sure that we're actually achieving what we need to achieve to show some sort of leadership, but also to actually reduce greenhouse gas emissions at the rate that we need to. Yeah. And just building a little bit on what Mitch said. Sure. The other, the other area uh, that, you know, there's now a gap is going to be with the Green Trust Fund um, and the, the commitment, the monetary commitment uh, that we or President Obama had made uh, when he joined with everyone else. So, um, you know, between the president and, and Congress, you know, there will now be, because the funds will no longer be going, uh, I think there'll be, a, I think it's like a $2 billion shortfall uh, that will be in that space. And those resources are actually going uh, to other countries uh, to help them to sort of get up to speed and begin to be able to move forward on some of the changes that will be necessary, especially, you know, those those countries that are not as blessed financially um, mm -hmm. as our country is. So that's another gap that, that exists now in the space uh, since those dollars will not be appropriated. So there's so much here. Let, let, me, let, me, let me kind of move into an area that, that I'm really curious about where we think this movement is going and what can be done politically. And let's just talk about what I saw on the ground in D.C. And I don't know if this and, and Mustafa, I really want to start with you here because see if you um, will support the idea that this may be something that's happening nationwide, or if it's just something I 
observed when it came to the Baltimore delegation that we ended up being with at the climate uh, march um, last month. So, so I got done with the climate march, and we had done a bunch of programs leading up to it with the artists in Baltimore, a wonderful group of multiracial young artists who put together all these pieces leading up to the climate march in different communities. Uh, the the puppet theater in Baltimore that had the masks and everything ready to roll in D.C. was people milling around. But then one of the things it hit me, as the buses began to arrive, uh, the leadership, both speaking and then at the head of the Baltimore March, were black women from the housing projects, organized with and through Communities United, which is a group that's been doing some serious community organizing around the rights of public housing residents and fighting poverty and fighting some of the things that have been going on and doing some really aggressive and active work. And the other group there that was that was um, also a, had a substantial presence and at the lead was Maryland Working Families, which is multiracial but a black-led organization of, of working families in Maryland. And then you had the college campuses. And for the first time, what I noticed was that there were, that HBCUs were there in the forefront, along with UMBC and Towson University students and students from Goucher. There were students from Coppin State University, from Morgan State University, and then I noticed whole contingents of HBCUs from around. So this is something that, and you, and you we, this is something that I've, that I've kind of been watching this kind of shift in leadership, shift in perspective. So is this an isolated incident, Mustafa? Is something moving and bubbling around the country that we need to be aware of? Well, yes. Um, there, there's definitely a shift. There's a paradigm shift. There, there is a, uh, a power shift, if you will, although slow, um, but definitely happening where, uh, you know, uh, organizations of color um, and uh, networks that have been focused on environmental justice, social justice, climate justice issues um, are definitely now beginning to take their rightful place in leadership. Um, in authentic collaborative partnership with others uh, to address these issues. The thing that I've noticed, and I mean, I've literally been crisscrossing the country over the last eight to nine weeks, is that these issues are now beginning to take root um, in, in fertile ground, ground that had been plowed before, you know, for decades now. Um, and finally, uh, folks are starting to, to, to be able to move forward and to get it. Um, and, and what you see is, um, is that indigenous organizations, um, organizations along the Gulf Coast, um, and, and, you know, in Appalachia, a few, um, and, and a number of other places are now beginning to, to come together uh, with some of the larger green organizations, other civil rights organizations, and are starting to, to move forward. Like you said, Mark, it's really interesting. So Dr. Beverly Wright and Dr. Bob Bullard and others who are part of the HBCU uh, climate change work that's happening, um, literally brought uh, tens of, you know, dozens and dozens of buses with young people um, to participate in the march. And that actually was here in Washington, D.C., but across the country there were the other sister marches that were happening that were very diverse. Um, and folks are beginning to understand that if we are going to win in this space, then it has to be a diverse movement. It has to be one where silos are broken down, and we have to honor the fact that when we talk about climate and we talk about the impacts that are happening, many of those coal-fired power plants, many of those other greenhouse gas emitting facilities are in those communities. And they are very connected and very committed because they understand that, 
you know, they're getting the double whammy in this situation. The first time is when that pollution comes out of those plants and that's affecting those communities and those schools that are in many instances located very closely. And then, of course, with the warming of the planet, you know, the, the second whammy that, that everybody has to deal with. Um, so folks are, folks are getting engaged. The other thing is that foundations are finally beginning to move in a direction of funding these organizations who have been on the ground um, and who have been in the fight, uh, who have been trying to get traction and make sort of transformation happen. Um, but, that you know, there's much more that needs to happen in that space. Um, and the, the last part, which you guys have raised, is that we have to make sure that these organizations, these communities are a part of leadership. Um, and there's still some work that needs to happen in that space. But it's a new day. I mean, even in the science march, you know, we saw some folks coming out. We saw scientists of color being invited into that space, although there could have been even more. Um, and then the People's Climate March and then some of the other marches, too. You're starting to see much more diversity um, and moving in the direction that folks um, and social justice and some of the other issues have been saying needed to happen, but we just hadn't seen that in the past in any type of a substantive way. But finally, finally, we're starting to move in the right direction. Um, and, you know, and, and that's, that, you know, that's a, that's a very positive thing. But I hope that we don't, um, you know, sort of take our foot off the gas, if you will, um, with what is needed uh, to continue to happen. We're here you're talking about the Paris Climate Accord being and the pull out of the U.S., the state of the movement for alternative energy and new energy systems and to fight for our environment. You're hearing the voice of Mustafa Ali, who is Senior Vice President for Climate, Environmental Justice, and Community Revitalization for the Hip Hop Caucus, and Mitch Jones, who is Senior Policy Advocate for Food and Water Watch. And we'll take a short break and come right back. Don't go away. back, folks. This is Mark Steiner here on The Mark Steiner Show on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And we are exploring the state of the environmental movement, what has happened uh, since uh, Trump pulled us out of the Paris Climate Accord uh, and the movements that are taking place to oppose that and where the energy are going and what we're seeing here locally and around the country uh, about what can be done. And we're here with Mustafa Ali. Mustafa Ali is Senior Vice President for Climate, Environmental Justice, and Community Revitalization with the Hip Hop Caucus. And of course, on this program, you met him first uh, when he was resigned from the EPA uh, in protest against policies there after a career there uh, and his uh, continuing his career as, a, uh, as an advocate uh, and uh, in fighting for change here with the Hip Hop Caucus. Ms. Jones, who is a Senior Policy Advocate for Food and Water Watch, who you've heard in this program numerous times. Uh, in his lobbying work, both in Capitol Hill and in Annapolis. Um, and so let's pick up on where we think these movements are going. And let, let, me, let me start again with you, Mustafa, I might, and then we'll come back to this, the region here. But let's, I mean, you, 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 as you said earlier, and I know, you know, in our conversations uh, back and forth, um, you know, either by email uh, or in messaging, you know, every, every day this happens, we, you're somewhere else. You're in California, and you're in Illinois, and you're across America, uh, and talking with communities. So give us a sense of what you're seeing out there. Where, where is this movement going? 
I mean, you know, and, and, and give us a feel for what's beyond where our listening audience is. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's... Uh... It's an exciting time, even with the challenges that, that you know, we're currently facing. Um, you know, you've got folks in, in Princeville, North Carolina, who faced that thousand-year flood and bringing attention uh, to why, you know, focusing on climate change is so important for a community that's been there since, you know, um, slavery was over. They were, they were freedmen. Um, and as I travel around the country, people um, are excited that folks are beginning to come together. They're excited about that. Uh, but there are also, you know, some real challenges in some of our states as the new administration tries to move toward more of a federalist sort of system, if you will. Um, so there's some challenges in that space where folks have concerns that states that have not necessarily been good actors, if you will, in relationship to our most vulnerable communities of being able to, you know, stay engaged in that process um, and, and be able to get traction. The other interesting thing that folks are sharing with me as I'm traveling around the country is that a number of folks who normally would not run for political office mm. are now beginning to engage in that process, um, to, you know, to do the things that are necessary um, to be able to move there, to build the right types of relationships, and to be able to identify you know, funding streams for them to be able to move in that space, which is extremely important. Um, and, and these conversations to get folks, authentic folks, uh, into positions, especially, you know, younger people, uh, folks who we know will stay true to the game, if you will, um, and, and, and will make sure that if they are, you know, blessed to be elected into office, whether it's on the local level, the county level, the state level, um, that, you know, they'll do what's necessary uh, because they come out of, you know, this work, they come out of these sets of experiences. Um, and I'm finding that across the country on college campuses, uh, in my conversations, you know, and, um, you know, sort of town hall meetings um, and, and a number of different places. So for me, that um, sort of harkens back to a time that was a little bit before my time. And, in the, you know, the stories that my mentors and others have shared with me in the 60s and the early 70s of that sense of, civic engagement uh, and commitment to a process, it's good to see folks starting to circle back around because what they've been currently seeing is completely different than, than their sets of values. Um, so for me, that is a really good thing. The other thing that has been very heartening that we mentioned earlier is that folks who traditionally hadn't given uh, you know significant consideration or funding uh, to uh, a diverse group of organizations, that happening also. So many of the organizations um, are now beginning to, you know, sort of crack that, that door, if you will. Um, and, and I'm hoping, and in my conversations with funders, really helping them to understand uh, why it is so necessary um, to be able to help build capacity in these organizations across the country. Um, and to support things like the various types of worker training programs that can be out there and to support uh, training around entrepreneurialism uh, so that folks can really start to, you know, build stronger foundations. And I'm seeing that happen um, across the country. And, and as I said before, I'm seeing folks beginning to break down those silos that have traditionally separated us and made us weaker um, as a country um, and as a movement. 
I have a direct question about some of the people who are running uh, the politics of what could go next, but um, let me go to Mitch first, and I'm just curious to you, your observations, too. I mean, um, I know you're not a community organizer necessarily, in that, yeah, but, you are, but you've done that work, and you mm-hmm. also are uh, in the middle of the policy work right. in different capitals. So how are you seeing it? Well, I, I think that there is just since last November um, when Trump was elected, so before Paris even, a renewed – uh, vigor in the places where I'm working for uh, action on climate. You know, we saw that manifest here in Maryland most clearly with uh, the override of the governor's veto on uh, the RPS expansion, but I think uh, magnify that much more with the completely unexpected uh, fracking ban passage. Some of, us ex- some of us expected it. I predicted it on your show, Mark, and was you laughed did. at by the industry. But um, <laughs> so, I so, that. so um, I'm still <laughs> still waiting for that text saying, "Oh well, you were right." But anyway, um, don't hold so, your So you know, and and the Hip Hop Caucus and and Reverend Yearwood from the Hip Hop Caucus came out and helped us uh, win that fight. You know, we did have a very diverse, I think, coalition put together for that victory, and it shows what Mustafa's talking about in terms of when we have a more diverse, powerful coalition, we can win fights that most of the insiders and the elite tell us we can't win. I think that's not only true here in Maryland. I think we're going to start seeing that uh, in other states. California, which you know is usually seen as a leader on these issues, their Senate uh, just passed a bill setting a 100% target for renewable energy. I happen to think that the bill isn't aggressive enough, but it's you know something that here we have this bill moving. Yeah, I know. It's (laughs) shocking that I didn't find it aggressive enough. but, but that's this is why we get along, Mark. So you know, uh, you know. But I think that there is this growing sense of urgency at the grassroots level, but also among elected officials that we have to act. We have to take it upon ourselves to push forward uh, the fight on on climate change. You know, we at Food and Water Watch earlier this year launched a, a new nationwide campaign called Off Fossil Fuels, where we're giving grassroots or. Uh, volunteers the tools to go out and organize in their communities to stop natural gas pipelines to fight for 100 percent renewable energy um, again hip-hop caucus helped us with the launch of that um, you know it's we're working in diverse communities across the country to to really empower the grassroots to take it upon themselves to to help build the political power that is going to help the uh the the newly uh invigorated elected officials actually win the battles against the entrenched leadership that so often says, well, you can't have that this year, or that's too aggressive, or no, we can't accomplish that. And so I do think that there's a, a, you know, there's some hope here, despite everything that's happening, because folks aren't just lying back and taking it anymore. They're, you know, teaching themselves and teaching one another what it means when you have political power. And then they're demonstrating that to their elected officials and beginning to get results. You know, I read right before I walked over here, Mark, that um, already since uh, Trump pulled out of the Paris Accord, a thousand local and state governments in this country have said that they would uh, continue to try to meet uh, the climate goals. Again, not aggressive enough, but it just shows a powerful message that, you know, localities, states, the grassroots, real people are not going to sit back and let a failure of leadership at the federal level, which has you know, made us a rogue nation when it comes to climate change, we're not going to allow that to stop us from moving forward and doing what we need to do to assure the health and well-being of our families. Yeah. I mean, Mitch said an 
extremely important word that I know that I'm sharing around the country and that I'm hearing repeated um, across the country, and that is power. People Mm. are starting to realize that they actually have power. And as I often say, the only way someone can take power away is if you give it away. And because of the translation of that power, people are raising their expectations. They are beginning to say what will and will not happen in their communities and for their country. Uh, And that is translating, as Mitch said, um, into action. So who would have thought that we would have a 100 by 50 uh, bill put forward um, in the Senate by Markey and Berkeley and Sanders and some others um, moving us toward 100 percent fossil fuel free? Who would have thought that on the House side, you know, new members and some of the uh, older established members would now have an climate justice and environmental justice task force? First time ever that something like that has happened. Um, And it will provide a foundation uh, for moving forward. The pendulum will swing back in the other direction. And those, uh, you know, folks who care about what's happening in communities, who care about having, you know, a fossil-free, you know, future, uh, those who are care about us having sort of a, a strong climate economy will have the opportunity to move those types of things forward. But all of those are happening because folks are standing up and saying this is the direction that we want to go into um, and, and, and literally checking, um, you know, our new, uh, you know, president and administration um, and saying that, you know, the things that you're trying to move forward on, we're going to stay engaged. And for those folks on Capitol Hill, um, who decide to, to not move in that direction, we'll find somebody else to sit in those seats. Um, so I think <laughs> that power, you know, it is, um, it is what is truly happening across our country, and it is, uh, is from a grassroots up uh, process. So one of the other things about it is knowing how movements go and, and, and the, the, the interesting warfare that can take place um, that many people in the progressive movement often like to eat their young rather than come together in a broad umbrella and fight for things. Um, and that's happened many times, though I don't want to put all the owners there, but that it's, it's a piece of the issue. And I'm thinking about what you were saying, Mustafa, and I'm just thinking about, you know, that there, there is stuff that you and, and people like Jackie Patterson are working on around the country in communities um, where there's real community resistance being built up in communities of color, especially working class communities, Prince George's County, in East Chicago, across the country, that you can you know, delineate, and and then there's also the, the political move you were talking about and organizing political action in terms of voting, and there's these demo- and there are demonstrations. So I mean, how do we see these things working together, and do they work together? I mean, is there, you know, I, I, I was talking to Jackie Patterson recently in, in about the work she's been doing in East Chicago, um, and it's very profound work, and with people fighting a real resistance to the poisoning of their community and to be moved out of the community without and, and making sure that, that their lives are made whole. Um, and somehow, to me, that's got to be united with the movement to build a new economy, the movement to build uh, the alternative energy economy that's no longer alternative but comes the energy economy that's not based solely on carbon. Because it'll take us a good 30, 40 years, and we can debate that, to get away from carbon completely. Um, it, it, it can't happen overnight, I don't believe, anyway. So how, how do you see that coming together, Mustafa? Well, I think there's a lot of work that has to happen in that space. Um, you know, as we begin to have conversations around climate justice, environmental justice, and economic justice, 
I mean, we have to be honest when we talk about power that, you know, uh, some traditional organizations are going to have to, you know, uh, create some space there. And as, as you said before, <laughs> that can create some challenges when <laughs> folks who normally are the only voice or the leading voice have to give, you know, space to new voices and, and evolving voices and, and that type of thing. Um, but, you know, an interesting example is, you know, when we had the climate march and the people's uh, march, um, you know, if, if we just had those marches and there was nothing else that was associated with it, it would be great as a moment, but it wouldn't be a part of the movement. But what folks have done is, uh, you know, they've come together in these spaces, uh, and then they're taking uh, that energy back home and, and, and helping to sort of translate that into transformative types of actions, uh, not just in the political process, but also and thinking critically about how do we begin to revitalize these communities. At the Hip Hop Caucus, we, we have a new program that's launching in July called Revitalizing Vulnerable Communities, and we're linking that also with Respect My Vote campaign um, and helping folks to be able to, to translate that uh, into real change. So those types of things are happening. Now, we need to, if we're going to have real talk here, we also have to understand that as we start talking about uh, you know, a developing and new climate economy, that we have to make sure that, you know, communities of color um, and others, um, you know, low-income communities as well, have a real place at the table in that conversation. Uh, when we start looking at solar and wind and the opportunities that exist in that space, then we also have to take a look at those businesses that are in that space or organizations that are funding in that space and take a look at the diversity or lack thereof mm -hmm. that exists. Um, and if we're not willing to address that, we will once again lose. There will be some winners, but the majority of folks will lose in that space because it is is not truly reflective of our country. Um, so that is another area that we have to really, at this time, begin to address, begin to make sure that people have the skill sets that are necessary to enter into that if, if, if some folks um, don't have those. Um, if we're really going to have this transformative uh, paradigm, uh, transformative economy that is inclusive and equitable for everyone. That is key, it seems to me, Mitch. It is key. I mean, I think that, and I think that's where building real political power comes from, is from that inclusivity. If, as long as we're moving forward in a just transition, we can build the political power to make sure that not only the transition happens, but that people have jobs, no matter what their socioeconomic background, that we're taking care of the most vulnerable communities so that nobody is, is being left with, you know, my great fear is that the way a lot of, of Greens talk about uh, renewable energy is going to lead to having two different energy systems. You're going to have a clean distributed energy system for people, no offense, Mark, who live up in Sparks, uh, who live up in Baltimore County, uh, who could put solar panel, could afford to, to put solar panels on the roof. And then you're going to have another one for folks who live down by the coal plants and the municipal incinerators and have to not only breathe the, the pollution, but suffer from all the other consequences that come from that. We need to have a vision of the clean energy economy, which doesn't have that, that bifurcated uh, reality, but instead brings us all together under one clean energy economy and doesn't leave anybody behind and invests in our communities, creating good paying jobs so that people can stay in their communities, send their kids to school, put food on the table, and have good, meaningful lives. And that 
comes from that inclusivity, I think, as a root central principle that we that we have to work with. And it's not only in our clean energy work that goes to when we talk about water infrastructure, it goes to when we talk about reforming agriculture, it goes across when you when you begin to build out all of these pieces that link together, that is an important component across all of the boards because that's how we're going to build the power to take on the folks who are going to be profiting from keeping us separated and making sure that the way this is done is profitable for them, but not necessarily best for everyone else. And one of the things, Mustafa, I think is really important here as well is is the is the question of leadership uh, in these movements. Um, and, and do something that's not just symbolic, but actually has depth in terms of a leadership that is coming out of the black community, is coming out of communities of color, coming out of the native communities in America, coming out of, uh, of, of uh, at, at the forefront of this, as opposed to just being, you know, I, I thought about this when you said inclusivity, you know, and that's, that's important, but it's inclusivity and who is leading mm -hmm. is the question. Who's in power? Who's, whose agenda is being met? And how do we broaden that agenda? I mean, to me, that is key to making this work, given everything has shifted here in the last 50 years, and especially shifted, I think, since the turn of the century. You know, I agree with you 100% on that. And, you know, that's always going to be, uh, you know, that's, that's always going to be a challenge. You know, it's interesting, you know, when we talk about leadership, uh, I think about Hazel Johnson, the mother of the environmental justice movement, and how, you know, in the late 70s, you know, she was already talking about climate change. Uh, she was using some different language than we currently do today. But, you know, she was developing young leaders. I was really blessed um, to be mentored by her, be, you know, invited into her space when I first came into working on these issues as a student. And I think that's one of the other additional areas that we really have to be very mindful of. And that's sort of the intergenerational aspect of, of leadership and making sure that young voices um, are being mentored, but also being honored in that space as well. Um, and, you know, a number of the environmental justice organizations have embraced that type of a model uh, because they understand that, you know, some of our leaders who have been around for a while, you know, eventually will, you know, want to slow down a bit. Um, that doesn't mean they'll ever disconnect. But, you know, creating that space for, you know, younger voices, folks who have a lot of energy and innovation uh, coming into the mix as well, um, is important, and um, and that's going to be a necessary component as we move forward. Also, the other thing too is those organizations, uh, you know, of color, um, organizations that are focused on whether it's you know, uh, food justice issues, uh, or housing justice issues, um, or even our uh, farming organizations that are out there, folks coming together and beginning to map out uh, this new direction. I haven't personally. Uh, done much work with sort of the big uh, conglomerates that are around farming, but I have worked with those who have middle-sized farms and, and small family farms, if you will. And they're concerned about these issues also, and they're beginning to, to pay much more attention because these direct impacts, they see them um, much earlier sometimes than, than some of the folks who may be more in the general population. It's almost like brothers and sisters who are in Alaska you know, they see these impacts very, very early on and understand how that can translate uh, to folks who are in the lower 48. So having all these various types of folks as a part of the process, as a part of leadership, as a part of the strategic planning and thinking and implementation um, is going to be extremely important as we move forward. And it's happening um, 
question is, how can we accelerate that? And I mean, I understand that in, in some instances, there's some of that foundational work that has to happen so that you make sure that it's strong for the long term. Um, but I mean, I think we really need to begin to have those types of, you know, not just meetings, but summits um, where we're pulling lots of these different types of folks together uh, to begin to, you know, be more inclusive and strategize about this new direction uh, that we need to go. You know, I was thinking about that. We only have a few minutes left here, but uh, that, that, that when you said Hazel Johnson, the majority of people in America don't even know who Hazel Johnson was in the, in the environment movement, you know, uh, as the, the woman who led this movement in Chicago around environmental justice and the, 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 the poison in the land from the industries and the deterioration community and how that was it had to do. And, and we've forgotten that sometimes that that is, was where this whole movement began was, was about the environment and what people's living conditions were because of the toxic waste that was left behind by all these industries. What, when the Cayuga River was on fire, you know, this was the beginning of it, really. And so it, it, it's, it is about green jobs and green economy, but it's also about what the Hazel Johnsons of the world bring to the movement and define the movement. That's the bridge that has to be gapped, I think. Um, no, that's the gap that has to be bridged, excuse me. <laughs> that's the gap that has to be bridged. So maybe we can't, we don't have time to do that now, but I, I would really invite a conversation to come back with a raging, raging conversation, maybe raging too at times, about how you bridge that gap, how that becomes center to building this new movement. Yeah, I would love to do that. You know, if there wasn't a Hazel Johnson, there wouldn't have been a President Barack Obama because she's the one right. who brought him into that, that work that he was doing right. in Chicago. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I, I really appreciate you taking all this time with our listeners today. Uh, from the Paris Climate Accord to building a new movement <laughs> in America, it's been a really, really important conversation. Uh, Mitch Jones is with us. He's Senior Policy Advocate for Food and Water Watch. Uh, Mustafa Ali is with us, Senior Vice President for Climate and Environmental Justice and Community Revitalization with the Hip Hop Caucus, um, taking us from uh, Trump's move from the Paris Climate Accord to what the movement is we need to build. Gentlemen, thank you both so much. Thank you. Really appreciate it. The Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our producer is Imani Spence. Our assistant producer is Calvin Perry. Our production assistant is Nadia Ramadan. Our engineer is Andrea Melton. And our theme music is by Wall Matthews of Clean Cuts. Please send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. And the podcast of Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, please visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcast app. For your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. I'm Mark Steiner. Thank you.